Good morning, Maranatha. Bow our heads. Let's bow our heads as I pray. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for uh, this Sunday. We thank you for this privilege that we have gathered to worship you, Lord. You are an almighty, majestic, perfect, holy God, and you are worthy of all worship. Lord, we take time to pray for the many churches, the local churches, our sister churches, and the churches in this area. That as people gather to worship, that the name of Jesus would be exalted. We pray, Father, for Damien Thomas and the churches in Jamaica, that Christ would be exalted in all that they do. Lord, we also pray uh, there are many who are ill, many who are not feeling well. We pray, Father, for healing. We pray as a church, as we have learned last week, that we will learn how to bear with one another, how to weep with one another, how to rejoice with one another, how to care for one another, Lord, in this season. And we ask, Lord, that you would bring healing to the many who are not feeling well. Lord, you are the God who can heal. So we pray, Lord, that you would bring healing. We also pray that in this season of pain, in this season of suffering, of trial, Lord, that you'd increase the trust of those who are hurting, that they would trust that you are a good God in every season. Lord, we also ask now that as we turn our attention to your word, that you would help us, that your Holy Spirit would soften our hearts, and that as we hear your word being preached, it would not just go in one ear and out the other, that we would not just be mere hearers of your word, but Lord, lead us to be doers of your word. Lead us to bear fruit in our lives. So we ask that you would help us now. We lift up these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning once again. Uh, for those who are new, visiting, welcome. My name is Eric, and I have the privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. And I'm thankful for this opportunity to preach as we continue in this series, Life in the Family of God. And as we start, I want to show several images. And the first image here, we're going to pull up here. It's a graph of the various SAT scores among our Maranatha folks. And I won't go into how I got it. A uh, handful of lower scores, I'm probably there. A handful of higher scores, you know who's there. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, you guys are probably all really nervous. This is not SAT scores at all. I'm, I'm, if you go to the next slide, it's my uh, walking history according to my iPhone health app. And it's a monthly step history. And, you know, the sudden spike in the middle, uh, you could see uh, before vacation, uh, 1,200 steps. I don't know if that's a lot or not. Uh, but then in vacation, if you go to the next slide, uh, we were walking uh, 12, 15 miles, and what's certain is I don't do much walking unless I'm on vacation, right? And this is probably the case for many of us, right? Especially during the pandemic with the option to work remotely. And we can have the lights back on, please. Thank you, Steve. And some of you may go on daily walks, but for the most part, because of cars, public transportation, home delivery, walking has become more of a leisure activity rather than a necessity. But this wasn't always the case, right? I'm just going to fix that. Sorry about that. This wasn't always the case. I finished reading Exodus several weeks ago, and I thought about just how much the Israelites had to walk from Egypt to eventually get to the Promised Land after four decades. It was a lot of walking, right? Walking was the main way, really the only way, 
of moving from place to place. And commentators, they differ on the number of people that were delivered from Egypt. But what's clear is that it was a lot of people. And this whole lot of people got from place to place by walking. And this physical act of walking from place to place, it signified something much deeper. As they walked, they were walking by faith. They were walking, trusting that the Lord who delivered them would continue to lead and provide. So this act of walking, it signified who, what you trusted in. And this was also the case in Jesus' time. It was common for a disciple to walk with a rabbi you want to learn from. And it wasn't just an hour of walking midday several days a week, but disciples would travel together with a rabbi and go away for weeks. It was a way of living, a way of learning, a way of becoming more and more like the rabbi. So it was custom for a disciple to ask for his wife's permission to be away from home for more than 30 days if they wanted to study, right? And this is what the disciples of Jesus did. They walked with Jesus from town to town, learning from the Son of God, witnessing his ministry for three years. They walked with him, trusting in him, wanting to become more and more like him. This theme of walking continues for all of us who are in Christ. And our passage this morning shows that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To be filled with the knowledge of his will and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is at the heart of Paul's prayer for the Colossians. The Colossians, they've been a great encouragement to Paul. He's filled with great gratitude because Epaphras, a fellow disciple, he was saved through Paul's preaching of the gospel in Ephesus. Epaphras, a Colossian, moved back home, preached the good news, and helped to establish the city or the church in the city. As those who are committed to growing as brothers and sisters in Christ here in Manatha, we are committing to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And we're not walking in a manner worthy of the Lord to become worthy or deserving of salvation. We're to walk in a manner that reflects what God has accomplished for us through his son, Jesus. In other words, we are to walk in a way that shows that what the Lord treasures, that's what we treasure. And what displeases him is what displeases us. We're to walk in a way that shows that the Lord really matters to us that honoring him, that bringing him glory is our utmost priority. And our members' covenant puts it another way, that we'll be careful in our daily lives to deny worldliness and ungodly lusts, remembering that we have a special obligation to lead a new and holy life. So what I hope to do this morning is to lay down the groundwork for what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And for those who are part of discipleship groups, I encourage you to study Colossians 3, 1 to 17, and consider how to spur one another on to good works. So the question this morning, what does it look like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? And this is a very important question for every Christian. We have to think about this because it is every Christian's call. Whether you're young or old, whether you're a new believer or not, all of us are called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And Paul's prayer this morning from Colossians 1, verses 9 to 14, reveals four aspects of what it looks like to 
continually walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. So the first is this, that believers would bear fruit in every good work. In Matthew 13, Jesus taught the great crowds many things in parables, and one of those parables was the parable of the sower. And Jesus told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples in Matthew 13, 23, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. In a world that was heavily dependent on agriculture and producing crops for a living, this type of imagery of having good soil bearing fruit would speak volumes to listeners. And this phrase, bear fruit, can also be understood as be fertile, literally and figuratively, right? Be fertile. So when Paul is praying this, he's praying that the Colossians would have hearts of good soil. He's praying that the Colossians would have fertile hearts that are ready to receive the truths of God's word and produce good fruit. And this is what Jesus teaches his disciples in John 15, 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. We have been chosen by the Lord to be people who bear fruit because it's through such fruit that God is glorified. So this means that one cannot be a follower of Jesus if they are not bearing godly fruit. One cannot be a follower of Jesus if they are not bearing godly fruit. Matthew 7 says, Every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor a bad tree produce good fruit. Now, there are two notes I want to mention about bearing fruit. And the first is this, that each of us as God's people, we are called to bear fruit as we abide in Christ. This is every Christian's call. In our discipleship groups, we'll be looking at Colossians 3, 1 to 17 this week. And this passage, as we will see, It lists out bad works versus good works. Attitudes and actions that bear bad fruit versus those that bear good fruit. And there's a list that will pop up. Works before being in Christ versus works when we are in Christ. A life that's set on the things of earth versus a life that's set on the things above. It would be helpful for us to take time to look at this list together and assess how you are doing with the Lord. But one warning I do want to give is this. Pride is a dangerous sin. And many of us can become experts at Christian routines and acting Christian. And we can live each day experiencing no real power of God 
and bearing no eternal fruit. Right? Externally, you're playing the part, but internally, you're filled with selfishness. You're filled with joylessness. You're filled with greed, with anger. So what looks like good works in your life may actually be dead works. Works that are done with wrong motives. And while you may be able to trick man, people like us, we must recognize that we cannot and will not escape God's judgment one day. There's nothing that we can hide from Him. So you may look at a list like the one found in Colossians 3, and your main concern is how others can address the little speck in their eyes while neglecting the giant log in your own eye. One author from the Christian ministry, Navigator, Navigators, writes this. We can easily slip into the sin of the Pharisees of Jesus' day in judging ourselves by how we think we appear to others and neglecting the place of the heart where all good fruit is to germinate. When we love, desire, pursue, and fear the same things that the rest of the world does, we are not abiding in Christ, even though our lives may be filled with church-related activity. And often, we don't realize that we are living fruitless lives. We're not to give off an impression of bearing fruit. We're not called to compare our fruit with others and be discontent and jealous. We're not called to look at other fruits, others' fruit, and mix it up for your own. Our call is to bear fruit. And any godly fruit that is produced comes from, the, it comes from this inward reality that Christ has saved you and is continuing to save you. When we read in John 15, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The second thing is that bearing fruit often takes time. We are people who are obsessed with results, and not just results, but quick results. If you Google Maranatha Grace Church, Google says there are about 1.3 million results in 0.56 seconds. Right? So not only are we obsessed with quick results, but we also want high rates of return on our investments, whether it's time of our resources. And what do we do when those returns aren't happening? We just give it up. Right? We give it up. And I believe this type of dangerous mentality has affected the way we see bearing godly fruit in our lives. There's one youth student in my previous youth group in Massachusetts. And let's just put it out there. Youth students are awkward, right? And some are super awkward. Some are more awkward than others. And it's actually something I really love about the youth, right? It's very endearing to me. It draws me to them, their awkwardness, right? The more awkward the student, the more I love it, right? But this one student, it was like next level. And of course, she had her story, and I'm not going to go into that. But it almost took her two years to say hi to me, right? So each week, I'd approach her and say hi, and she would just look at me with a stone-cold gaze, and it's not like she was like, she just looked at me in the eye, 
and just turn. Two years. Every Saturday, every Sunday, I'd greet her. And then she would shut me down with this stone-cold gaze. So for the first like half year, I was pretty hopeful and I kept trying. But starting around month six to you know, end of year two, a lot of ungodly thoughts started to fill my mind. Like I was insecure. I was like, maybe I'm a bad pastor. Or maybe I'm saying hi weird. Like, and then it started to turn to bitterness. And then it started to turn to anger. And then apathy. Right? And there was a lot of inner dialogue. Right? Like, do you know who I am? How dare you? you know, all, and then I would go home on my drive back home. Like, ministry's so hard. Oh, that student. A lot of bad thoughts. Right? But you know what happened after two years? You know, one Sunday, I said my hi, expecting the usual response, but she looked back at me. But this time, it was with like this like, like awkward smile, right? And she said hi. Uh, and for me, like my world, like it just exploded. I was like, oh my gosh, like, Lord, you are at work. Thank you so much, right? <laughs> and you know what she did? when I left the youth group, when I left that youth group to move down here to serve here in Maranatha, she baked me cupcakes and wrote a note thanking me for my ministry. Some of the most meaningful cupcakes I've ever eaten in my life, <laughs> right? Worked two years for them. So the lesson, say hi to me, right? Say, no, I'm just kind of <laughs> That's just a general thing that we should be doing, right? The lesson here is this. Bearing fruit takes time. And it's often more time than we want to take. We don't know how the Lord is working, but we can trust that he is working out all things ultimately for his glory. We can trust in that. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't evaluate and try to learn where we can get better in loving, serving, caring for others. But we must keep in mind that bearing fruit, it often takes time. We may not see immediate results. And the truth is, we may never see results. But I want to encourage you, this isn't reason to give up. As it says in Colossians 3, if we set our eyes on the things above, our time frame for bearing fruit is not defined by earthly standards. It's defined by God's standards. And I always find great encouragement in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And I still remember when I heard this at a TGC conference, I was just bawling, right? Because I just felt like this youth student doesn't say hi to me. What I preach, it looks like it's... And I just felt like everything that I'm doing was just, it was a waste of time. And the, the pastor preached on 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And I hope that it's an encouragement for you as you seek to grow in your own walk in your own walk with the Lord, as well as in your ministry to others. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. That is a tremendous promise, a promise that we can cling to as we, as we seek to grow. The first aspect of Paul's prayer is that we would bear fruit in every good work. The second aspect is this, that we would increase in the knowledge of God. Isaiah 48 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. 
Psalm 19, 7 to 10 says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. You know, as you hear passages like this that speak on God's word and its eternal value and beauty, what's your response? What are you thinking right now? That's nice. That's true. I think whatever your response is, and particularly those types of responses, reveal a lot about how you are doing spiritually. Or it might show that reading and being God's word, it's actually not that important to you. Or it might show that you just don't believe that his word is the source of all godly wisdom. Or maybe it's you just think that God's word is merely an intellectual exercise, just growing in knowledge. That's what it's all about. Or God's word, reading it, is just one more item on my to-do list. Right? It might be one of these, a couple of these, or all of the above. And some of you know that I have a childhood education degree, and I taught second graders for a year in the city. And I spent a lot of money and learned all this information about child development, educational strategies, so on. But the reality is that most of my education, sadly, did not prepare me for what I was thrown into in my first year of teaching. Right? I didn't have time to think about, hey, what what stage in you know, child development is this kid while that boy is throwing books, textbooks at another student? I didn't have time for that, right? But it wasn't until I started working with the students each day that I started to learn what was effective and what wasn't. And each day as I commuted into the city, right, I was having firsthand experience at PS98 and it was a very difficult, very painful experience, but it was a first-hand experience and very rewarding. And this is what Paul is praying for. Paul is praying not that the Colossians would merely increase in informational or intellectual knowledge. He's praying that his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ would continue to grow in their knowledge gained through first-hand experience of living out God's word. Right? Something I remember learning from undergrad. Think about a young baby's development process. Human touch is very important. Human touch is very important for his, her development early on. Right? And in receiving that touch from the mother, father, the baby learns you're loved, you're treasured, you're safe, you're secure. And as the baby gets older, what do they do? They start touching everything, right? touching and all these objects, whatever it is, right? And in doing so, they're gaining more and more knowledge about the world around them. This is what Paul is praying for, that the Colossians would grow in contact knowledge, touch knowledge, that every effort to be made to live out what God's word has to say, and that by practicing God's word, that by putting it into contact with the real world, there would be an increase in the knowledge of God. 
Consider with me the call to forgive one another. When Jesus or any of the biblical authors taught on forgiving one another, they're not talking about forgiveness as an intellectual exercise. Right? Just imagine a relationship between friends or spouses where forgiveness was merely an intellectual exercise. It'd be horrible. It'd be shallow. There'd be so many issues. Right? But what Jesus taught was that as you forgive over and over again, and we're called to forgive not just seven times, but 77 times, meaning that there's no limit to how much we forgive those who have wronged us, but as you forgive over and over and over again, you gain a deeper knowledge and grow through first-hand experience, through contact knowledge, the tremendous forgiveness that Christ has secured for us. We forgive because we've been forgiven, but we also forgive to grow in our understanding of forgiveness. Or imagine if Forgiveness was an intellectual exercise for Jesus. There will be no cross. There will be no blood. There will be no forgiveness. There will be no life. So increasing in the knowledge of God is vital for every follower of Christ. James 1.22 calls every believer to not be merely hearers of God's word, but to be doers. And this is what Paul is praying for. And this is why it's not enough. I was reminded this week, speaking with a sister, it's not enough to spend 15 minutes a day in God's word. Right? And I'm not saying that spending time in God's word daily is not beneficial. Absolutely not. Being in God's word is one of the most important spiritual disciplines that every Christian must be engaged in. But what I am saying is this. We do not increase in the knowledge of God by making Bible reading a mere to-do list, an item on a to-do list. We do not grow in first-hand experience. We don't grow in contact knowledge by setting aside 15 minutes for the Lord in the morning or at night right before we sleep and thinking the rest of the day is all about just our own ambitions. It's all about now, what, it's about, what about me? We won't grow in that way. We can't grow in the knowledge of God if this is how we view Christian life. The third aspect of Paul's prayer is being strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And I very much appreciate that this is included in Paul's prayer because this Christian life, the call to deny myself the call to take up my cross, the call to follow Christ, and I tell the youth students this all the time, it's very, very difficult. Paul, who wrote this letter from prison, understood the need to be strengthened by the Lord. He himself experienced so much suffering for the Lord, and he witnessed the persecution of so many believers, some who remained faithful to the point of death, while others, in the face of trials, they turned their back on the Lord. And I recognize myself how prone I am to wander, how prone I am to drift away. I recognize myself that I, I'm quick to forget who I am in Christ. And my flesh wants to set my eyes on the things that are on earth, that are of earth. My flesh wants the things of this world. Right? And as I'm doing all this, I forget that I'm in the midst of a spiritual battle that is that can only be fought with the strength that the Lord provides. 
A commentator, J. Hampton Keithley, reminds us very clearly, Christians, we are engaged in a spiritual conflict with forces more powerful and insidious than anything we can imagine. In ourselves, we are no match for either Satan's guile or strength. Because of the finished work of Christ, he is a defeated foe, and ultimately he is doomed to the eternal lake of fire. But at this moment in history, Satan is alive, well, and working night and day to distract, defeat, and destroy. Last weekend, the youth had a lock-in, and I'm still cleaning from the lock-in. I'm finding random items all over Sweet too. And one of the items, I don't know why, right? One of the items that I'm finding are, are plastic cutlery knives, right? I'm not going to look for answers. I, I, it's just, welcome to youth ministry. That's all I can say, right? <laughs> Uh, but as I'm walking around, picking up these plastic knives, I'm thinking, why, Lord? Why? Why am I doing this? Right? And then the Lord showed me, I'm picking up these plastic knives for this following illustration. Okay? Right? There's an illustration in everything. Right? We forget the gravity of the spiritual battle that we are in. Right? We forget that we're even in a battle at times. We forget the gravity of the spiritual battle, right? And we forget about how important, how serious this battle is. And you know what we're doing? We bring our plastic fork and knife. We bring it thinking, Lord, I'm ready. And it sounds ridiculous, but this is essentially what we are doing when we take lightly the truths of God's word. When we take them lightly, we minimize the spiritual battle, and we think we can go on with our own strength. We think we can fight with our plastic fork and knife. But Paul, he doesn't think this way. And he wants to correct anyone who thinks in such a way. Right? Listen to Paul's exhortation in Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication." We are in the midst of a spiritual battle. And as we seek to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we are to put on the whole armor of God and to be strong in the Lord. Where he is the source of our strength. He is our refuge, our strong tower. And it's not just that the Lord is just one option among many. It's the only option. We need to be strengthened and the strength that is promised to us by the Lord, it's according to his glorious might. 
And this is the same power that brought the universe into existence. Right? Consider that for a moment. God, who has been powerfully at work from the beginning, he hasn't let up. And the very power that raised our dead Savior and Lord to life, that's the power that strengthens us. That's the power that is at work in us to transform us, to become more and more like his son, Jesus. None of us can make it to the end if we rely on our own strength. None of us. We are deceived by our sinful pride if we think in such a way. And if we think in such a way, we will turn away from so many opportunities to grow in the Lord. We will turn away from so many opportunities where we can bear fruit, where we can increase in the knowledge of God and give thanks to Him because our strength is limited. I thought one of the best definitions for biblical strength is found in Paul's boasting in his own weakness in 2 Corinthians 12.9. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that, in the, power, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. How are we strengthened in the Lord? How is God's power to be displayed in us more and more? By confessing that we are weak. By confessing our weaknesses before him more and more. God, I sinned against you again. God, I'm so weak. I'm so exhausted. I just can't do this again. I'm so fearful. I'm so anxious. Lord, I need your help. I need your strength. There's no other way that I can carry on. Church, as we practice more and more the confession of our weaknesses before the Lord, the Lord shows us over and over again how his grace is sufficient for us, of how his power will be made perfect in us because it's his power that will sustain us to the end. It's his power that will sustain us so that we can endure and be patient until the end. And notice that the power doesn't just get us to the finish line while we're dragging our feet. His power will help us to endure and be patient with joy. With joy. That's a picture of what it looks like to be strengthened in the Lord. The last aspect of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is giving thanks to the Father. Giving thanks, as David mentioned, it can't ultimately be based on our circumstances or what we possess. Although it's very good and it's right to give thanks to God for such blessings. And it would be a good practice for us to give thanks more often for these blessings because we want to recognize that He is the giver of all these good gifts. But if our thanksgiving is based on good circumstances or our earthly goods, we can only give thanks continually if our circumstances remain good or if we get more and more. And this is not the type of thanksgiving Paul is praying for. Paul's prayer here is a thanksgiving that's based on who the Lord is and what he has done. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. 
Paul is praying that the believers would grow deeper in their ability to trust that the Lord, in times of great joy or deep suffering, in every season, that the Lord is at work for our eternal gain and for his glory. Giving thanks is acknowledging that God's grace is always working for our eternal gain and for his glory. I want to repeat that. Giving thanks is acknowledging that God's grace is always working for our eternal gain and for his glory. That's why Paul can write, that's why Paul can write in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. It's because God's grace is always working for our eternal gain and for his glory. And we see in verses 12 to 14 that the greatest act of his grace working out for our eternal gain and for his glory, it's his work in saving sinners like the Colossians, saving sinners like you and me. Where we see in these remaining verses that it is the Lord who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It is the Lord's work from the beginning to the end. And I absolutely love this language, right? Think about all of your LinkedIn profiles, right? You guys are busy, like, listing out all your qualifications. I don't have a profile, right? When it started, I thought it was a scam, so I didn't do it, and then I just never did it, right? But if I had one, this, will be list- this is what will be listed. One-year children's librarian at Leonia Public Library. Uh, six months worked for Kumon. Six months worked at BJ's Wholesale. One year... New York City public school teacher, 13 years youth ministry. You know what our spiritual LinkedIn profiles look like before Christ? You know what will be listed as our qualifications? Sinner, enemy of God, lover of self, sexually immoral, liar, addict, one who's filled with anger and violence. And the list could go on and on and on. And this is still the case for anybody here who does not trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That is the list of your qualifications. Before knowing Christ as Savior and Lord, all we are qualified for is God's perfect, just wrath. And God's perfect, just wrath is what every sinner apart from Christ will share in for all of eternity. Because by nature, we are children. We were children of wrath. But we can give thanks because God, who is rich in mercy, with his great love, graciously qualified us. And when I say we, I'm talking about all of us who have confessed with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. It's by his grace that we have been qualified. And not only did he qualify us, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He pulled us out of the domain of darkness. He pulled us off our hell-bound path. And he gave us a brand new identity as adopted, beloved son, daughter of God, and gave us a new eternal zip code. And he securely hid our lives in Christ. 
And this news of salvation, this good news of salvation, it's offered to all of us here. Because salvation is truly by God's grace alone. But church, we need to remember this. God the Father did not qualify us by turning a blind eye to everything that disqualified us. He can't do that. It's not in his character to do that. He can't just overlook sin because he is too holy. And he didn't just deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into his son's kingdom while ignoring the fact that we owe a great debt because of our sin against him. The Father qualified us to share in this heavenly inheritance. The Father delivered us, transferred us into his son's kingdom because Jesus, the beloved son of God, came to earth and he took on flesh. Jesus humbly came to redeem sinners and to secure the forgiveness of our sins. And he accomplished this by laying down his life in our place The blood of Jesus covers us and is more than enough payment for the debt that we owe. We owe an infinite debt, but the infinite value of Christ's blood paid it all off. My sin, not in part, but the whole. The death of God's one and only Son, who was sinless, took on our sin for our sake, dying for every sin on the cross and securing full forgiveness for all who believe. His work is finished. So I ask you, Maranatha, what other response can we have but to bear fruit? But to increase in the knowledge of God. But to be strengthened in our weakness. But to give thanks over and over and over again. There is no other response. I want to close with this challenge. And it's a question from pastor, author, Charles Spurgeon. Do I live as carelessly and worldly as unbelievers while professing to be a follower of Jesus? If so, I am exposing Christianity to ridicule and leading people to speak evil of the holy name by which I am called. Jesus is indeed our Messiah. He is the name of all all names. He is Emmanuel. He is Redeemer. He rescued us from our sin. Church, the Lord is the source. He is the motivation. He is the end goal. So I want to encourage you. Let us remember all of this and strive to walk in a manner that is worthy of his name.